Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this episode number 14, Headache, Pearls and Pitfalls, we have with us Dr. Anil Chopra and Dr. Stella Yu. Dr. Chopra is an emergency physician at the University Health Network in Toronto and an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. He's the head and medical director of emergency medicine at the University Health Network. Dr. Yu is an emergency physician at the University Health Network in Toronto and the Ottawa Hospital. She's a faculty member at both the University of Toronto and the University of Ottawa. She was the assistant director of education at the Department of Emergency Medicine at UHN. She contributes regularly to various blogs and podcasts on academic emergency medicine. The vast majority of patients with headache we see in the ED will have one of the three so-called benign headaches, tension, migraine, or cluster. Nonetheless, what the EM doc must keep at the forefront of their mind for any patient who presents with headache are the more serious life, limb, or vision-threatening causes, and not just subarachnoid hemorrhage. In this episode, with the blinding brilliance of Anil Chopra and Stella Yu, we'll cover not just the nuances of diagnosing and managing subarachnoid hemorrhage, but also how to diagnose and manage some of the less common and challenging causes of headache. I usually keep a list of about 10 serious causes in the back of my head every time I see a patient in the ED with headache. By the end of this episode, it's my hope that you too will not only have that list at your disposal, but know the key diagnostic pearls for each so that the next clinical encounter you have with a headache patient on your next shift will be a hugely satisfying one. Dr. Yu is no stranger to internet-based emergency medicine education. She's a regular blogger on our friend Michelle Lin's very cool website, academiclifeinemergencymedicine.com out of San Francisco. And she's also been on the EMRAP Educators Edition with David Carr, who was on our last episode. Dr. Chopra has been an author for the last 15 years in Tintinelli on peripheral vascular disease and thromboembolic disease. So I'm hoping to have him back on EMC to do an episode on thromboembolic disease. Welcome, Dr. Chopra, and welcome, Dr. Yu. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. We're going to talk about headache today, and we'll jump straight into the first case. The first case is a 35-year-old woman with a history of migraines who presents to your ED with a 24-hour gradual onset, constant 8 out of 10 left-sided throbbing headache. She says that this headache is similar to her previous migraine headaches, but that this one is the worst headache of her life. When you walk into the examination room, the lights are off, and she's wearing sunglasses. She reports the headache being preceded by nausea but no vomiting and some bright colored flashes of light that go across her entire visual field. She reports no neck stiffness, no fever, and no focal neurologic deficit. Her past medical history is otherwise negative and she takes sumatriptan for her migraines, which usually works, but this time wasn't working. On exam, her GCS is 15, pupils are equal and reactive, fundi are crisp and clear, neck is supple, gait is normal, and there's no pronator drift. So, Dr. Yu, what are your general thoughts at this point in this presentation? I like that the patient had a positive sunglasses sign in the dark emergency room. 
I am reassured by the fact that she said the headache is gradual and said, and it sounds like it was identical to her previous migraine headache. Um, I tend to get a little bit more information from her to see if it was it started the same and it feels like the same area and the intensity. Um, if I'm reassured, then I don't think I'll be thinking too much about other, other diagnosis. Although if she said that the onset is different or if the intensity or the duration or where it is, is very different from previous migraine, then I want to think about other bad diagnosis. And Dr. Chopra, any, any thoughts? Um, just one thing I always like to keep in mind is when somebody comes in with a supposed diagnosis of migraine, I think we, it behooves us to make sure that in fact they do have multiple episodes of typical migraineist type of headaches which have been medically investigated. I often find on the emergency chart or the triage note uh, a diagnosis of migraine, and when you ask the patient, it was based on a headache three years ago that they self-diagnosed as migraine. And to me, that doesn't really mean much, and I always still rely on uh, making sure that there's no uh, other signs suggestive of a secondary headache. Right. Yeah, I usually do that, too. I ask them specifically, did your doctor diagnose you with migraine headaches, or do you just have migraine headaches every now and then that you've called migraine headaches? Absolutely. Okay, so this patient's working diagnosis is migraine with aura. As ED docs, our primary job is to rule out serious pathology, which we'll talk a whole lot about later on in the episode. One way of helping to rule out serious pathology is by ruling in benign pathology. There is a constellation of symptoms that can rule in migraine with near certainty. Uh, it was from a JAMA article, and they used the mnemonic pounding, where... P is for pulsatile quality, the O is for the O in hours, 4 to 72 hours in duration, U is for unilateral, N is for nausea, and D is for disabling intensity. So really it's pound. If you had four out of five of those particular things in the mnemonic, then the positive likelihood ratio that your patient was experiencing a migraine was 24 which is pretty much diagnostic. Do you find this mnemonic useful? So it's interesting that the JAMA article had this study in their rational clinical exam um, series. I think it's useful in the outpatient setting, um, in patients who may not be the same people who present to the eMERGE. If you look at the study, half of the patients are seen in clinics not in the eMERGE setting. So while these might be helpful in those patients, I personally don't rely on too much of it to make a diagnosis of patients with migraine in the ED. I think if you have these constellation of typical symptoms, uh, it's reassuring, but I must say I find uh, the SNOOP mnemonic more helpful, S-N-O-O-P. Uh, the S standing for systemic signs or symptoms such as fever, weight loss, uh, malignancy, or immunocompromised status which would be worrisome. Uh, the N for neurological signs or symptoms, whether sensory or motor symptoms or visual changes or speech disturbances. And the first O in terms of onset, clearly a headache that begins with an abrupt onset with peaking intensity early on is worrisome. The second O being old age, i.e. age greater than 40 for a new onset headache in itself is worrisome. And finally, the P in terms of progression of, of the headache syndrome as emergency physicians, we know if the symptoms and signs are progressing, it behooves us to make sure there's no other serious pathology underlying the cause. 
if I find any of those factors in terms of the history or the physical examination, I'm going to be a lot more careful in ruling out a secondary cause. Right. Okay. So where this pounding mnemonic can help you rule in migraine, the Snoop mnemonic is for any red flags for that this is not migraine, this is some serious cause. Right. Okay. So we've all seen patients who present with presumed migraine with aura who have focal neurologic symptoms. And this can make it tricky because when someone presents with focal neurologic symptoms, you're thinking, well, maybe this can be, maybe this is something serious like a TIA or a stroke. How can we distinguish migraine from focal neurologic symptoms from a, a TIA? Is there an easy way? Well, one of the classical uh, descriptives for a migraine is that migraines march, i.e. they change dynamically over hours with symptoms moving, quality changing. So that's helpful. And typically migraines, uh, the symptoms progress or change over the course of several minutes to a half hour, while TIAs are a lot more abrupt. And um, But again, I think one of the, the pitfalls is that if you have new neurological symptoms or signs, you need to rule out a secondary cause, particularly in the elderly population who may have vascular disease, including ischemic heart disease. One of the other diagnoses that migraine often gets mixed up with is retinal detachment or vitreous detachment. The hallmark symptom of retinal and vitreous detachment is the so-called floaters and flashes. By far the most common condition mimicking vitreous or retinal detachment is visual aura associated with a classic migraine, which is sometimes called scintillating scotoma. The way that you can distinguish scintillating scotoma of migraine from floaters and flashes of retinal detachment or vitreous detachment is, first of all, that usually in migraine, the symptoms are bilateral versus in retinal or vitreous detachment, the symptoms are unilateral. And secondly, as in this case, the light flashes that they see in migraine are usually colored versus in retinal detachment, the light flashes are usually white. Lastly, in migraine, there's sometimes a central area of visual loss they sometimes refer to as tunnel vision, as opposed to in retinal detachment, it's more like a curtain coming down. Okay, so let's continue with the case. The patient was given 50 milligrams of IV Demerol and a liter bolus of normal saline. Two hours later, she was reassessed and her pain was now 2 out of 10 and she wanted to go home. She was sent home with a prescription for Tylenol 3s and told to follow up with her family doctor. So let's talk a little bit about the treatment of migraine in the emergency department. What does the evidence tell us about what the best migraine medications to use in the emergency department are? I think now we have just a ton of data that's uh, indicating that almost irrespective of the cause of the headache, a dopamine antagonist with an anticholinergic followed by discharge uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication with or without steroid treatment alongside a discharge should become really the standard of care for management of migraine headaches or any headaches of undifferentiated cause because we're talking about making the patient feel better. It has nothing to do with the diagnostics at the stage of making the feel, patient feel better and alleviating their discomfort. Right, so that's one of the big pitfalls is that if the patient's pain is better, that will not make it less likely that they have a serious cause. In terms of the medications, you mentioned the dopamine antagonist. What's your favorite dopamine antagonist to use? What does the evidence say about which one we should be using? 
my favorite is uh, metoclopramide, which is what the, my institution use. Um, I also tend to give Benadryl routinely with that as well because I've had personal cases of a lot of akesthesia, and they seem to do quite well with that. Okay, so Benadryl is to prevent akesthesia. And how good is the Benadryl at preventing the akesthesia? Well, for sure, I think we, uh, we really underestimate how much akesthesia actually exists in our patients who even get a single significant dose of a dopamine antagonist. And just for the record, mine happens to be uh, proclopirazine, but I really don't think it makes a difference which one you use. I think the essential part is to use an anticholinergic with it. And use of diphenhydramine or Benadryl decreases the uh, the incidence after a single shot, let's say, of uh, proclopirazine by two-thirds. So it's not an insignificant reduction. I realize some people may choose to use an alternative anticholinergic like benzotropin, but I think the important thing is that both should be given to a patient uh, off the bat. Off the bat, okay. So not just in response if they do have a reaction. Okay, so just to clarify for the listeners, prochlorperazine is the brand name is Stematil in Canada and metoclopramide, the brand name is Maxaran in Canada. Another uh, good strategy that I find and it's been borne out in the literature is sometimes we have this habit of, particularly in the emergency department, being time constrained. When we give a parenteral medication, it's it's really easy to just give a quick bolus over five seconds. Uh, but in fact, if you give the uh, dopamine antagonist, whether it be metoclopramide or prochlorperazine, uh, if you give it a, in a mini bag over an infusion, let's say 15 minutes, it is much less likely to cause the extrapyramidal effects, which I, uh, which I have want to remind our listeners about. At least one in five patients who gets a single shot of these medications will get akathisia or other symptoms, and at least about 5 to 10% of them will have a very severe episode of that. One of the things I also want to bring up if using something like metoclopramide is you want to make sure that you are not adding another drug that can prolong the QTC like rodancitron. So if you're using two agents, then you have potential increasing your QT interval. Right. So if you have your migraine patient who then has a syncopal episode, you should be thinking about prolonged QT. There's your diagnosis. All right. What about triptans? In primary care, triptans are used like water. Is there a role for the use of triptans in the ED or when sending patients home? I personally have not prescribed very much of triptan, mostly because one, the patient have tried it themselves and it does not work. And two, they presented so many hours after the onset of their headache that we know that if we give triptan late, it's unlikely to work as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Dr. Uh, you generally not the first drugs to go to for these headaches. They're, as well as, as we know, they're contraindicated in patients with cardiovascular disease, including very commonly hypertension, uh, because they, are, uh, they have a serotonergic mechanism per se. And I think though they may have a small role to play, a small niche in terms of uh, known responders uh, to triptans who didn't pre-medicate themselves before coming to the emergency department, and potentially also for rebound headaches. So when you're discharging a patient from the emergency department, let's say they've been on triptans before, do you tend to give them triptans again? Or is there any evidence that any other of the oral medications we give are just as good or any better? If they've been on triptans before and they just need a refill and they said that it worked well, I would often give them some. Uh, However, the literature does say that if you give them naproxen, it seems to be as good as triptan in 48 hours to prevent a rebound headache. However, we don't know whether naproxen is just as good for their next headache three months down the road. 
Okay. So when you're talking about rebound headache, that actually brings up the use of dexamethasone. There was a study in the BMJ in 2008 that showed that dexamethasone was quite good at preventing recurrence of headaches in patients who presented to the emergency department with migraines. Can you just tell us a little bit about dexamethasone and its role in migraines in the emergency department? In terms of dexamethasone, one thing we've got to keep in mind, and that's the reality, that irrespective of how well we managed our headache patients in the emergency departments, for the ones that go home, the majority are still in some degree of pain. And one of the uh, issues about what causes prolonged headaches, at the very least, is some degree of inflammation uh, around the blood vessels in the brain. And so, and the secondary fact to know is that when they do go home, they're going to get a worsening of their headache. The majority of the patients who go home from the emergency department after adequate treatment in our emergency department will have a secondary rebound headache. And if you pre-medicate them with dexamethasone prior to leaving the emergency department or at the time of discharge, it significantly reduces the risk of having a significant rebound headache within 72 hours of going home after completely adequate management in the emergency department. And I know very well that a lot of headache specialists use steroids and in particular dexamethasone in routine practice in treating people uh, with headaches. Okay, so you'll give IV 10 milligrams of dexamethasone. How do you give it? Well, the studies have as you can imagine, under good test conditions are given parenteral, but I think it makes absolutely no difference. One thing the literature has shown is, in fact, if you use doses equivalent to 15 milligrams or higher dexamethasone, seems to have greater efficacy if you're going to use only a single dose. But I think giving 10 to 15 milligrams of uh, dexamethasone at the time of discharge, whether oral or parenteral, the important thing is to give the steroid. This patient received Demerol and then was sent home with Tylenol 3s. Do you think there's any role for narcotics in the treatment of migraine in the emergency department? I think with all these other drugs that we've mentioned that we know work very well, there's probably very little role for narcotics. The history of Demerol is remarkable because certainly we all know the benefits and the risks involved with uh, using meparidine. But if you were going to use a a narcotic, meparidine or Demerol is the most serotonergic. So of the opiates that are commonly used, it in fact is the most effective narcotic. As a group, narcotics don't work very well. The drugs that we've just talked about work significantly better. But, you know, meparidine suffers from the rebound headache point of view. And the patients who get narcotics in general are much more likely to get a rebound headache after they go home, as opposed to using the combination of the dopamine antagonist, the anticholinergic, and the NSAID and the steroids we talked about. But if the reason that Demerol became so fashionable was that of the narcotics, it actually worked the best. I see. Okay. So I guess that explains why we see so many people coming back again and again and again and again wanting narcotics and then you get into the situation where you're not sure whether they're actually having true rebound migraines or whether they're just drug seeking. I guess either way, the way you're going to handle them is by saying that we have other alternatives that are better. Well, we know the usual uh, patients, and I hate to stigmatize patients because most are clearly not in that spec, but people will come in asking for that D and G or another alternative narcotic. And I'm not saying we necessarily have to fight with our patients, but we have to be very clear and set clear-cut guidelines that we use these alternative drugs which have been scientifically shown to work better and we are not generally going to cross the line and give the narcotics, which are inferior drugs by comparison. Before we go on to more serious causes of headache, I just want to review migraine. 
When faced with a patient with headache who you believe is most likely suffering from a migraine, you can use the pound mnemonic to help you rule in the diagnosis. Also, it's good to know that almost all patients with migraine will have nausea or photophobia or phonophobia. If the patient with the presumed migraine does not complain of any of three of these, then you should be considering an alternative diagnosis. If there's any change in the pattern of their migraine, whether that be duration, onset, location, or quality, you should also consider an alternative diagnosis. In terms of red flags for more serious causes of headache, the SNOOP mnemonic, which will be in the written summary, is a good way to help trigger you to look for alternative diagnoses. How about the best treatment of migraine in the ED? The best meds are Prochlorperazine, brand name Stematil, and Metoclopramide, brand name Maxaran in Canada. With these meds, beware of akathisia and consider giving Benadryl upfront for prevention since the number needed to treat is 5 to prevent it. Remember that metoclopramide and prochlorperazine are dopamine antagonists, so just like antipsychotics, beware of prolongation of the QT interval. Some docs will also give IV NSAIDs like Toradol along with the dopamine antagonist. In terms of how we can prevent recurrent migraines, there is good evidence that dexamethasone 10 to 15 milligrams can decrease the recurrence of migraines. Triptans should be reserved for patients who have responded well to them in the past. Finally, narcotics should generally be avoided in the treatment of migraine as they are associated with high recurrence rates. Before we go on to our next case, I just got to tell you about this hilarious thing I found when I was researching for this episode. I came across this article summary out of the Journal of Head and Face Pain called Orgasm and Migraine. And the quote goes like this. Occasionally, orgasm can trigger a migraine, but in others can relieve a migraine. The data suggests that some women who decline and say, not tonight, I have a headache, may be avoiding an effective treatment. Case number two is a 47-year-old woman who presents to your emergency department at 3 a.m. with the chief complaint of headache that's keeping her up from sleep. She describes the rapid onset of a severe 8 out of 10 diffuse headache that began at 9 p.m. that evening and reached peak intensity within five minutes. The headache occurred when she was drinking at a bar with her friends. She took two extra strength Tylenol and had some partial relief and felt well enough to continue socializing with her friends for a couple of hours. She complains of nausea, but no vomiting. In terms of previous headaches, she does have frequent tension headaches that sometimes are just as intense as her present headache, so that this is not the worst headache of her life. However, the present headache feels distinctly different to all her usual tension headaches. She denies recent head injury, fever, visual symptoms, neck stiffness, chest pain, or focal neurologic symptoms. She has a past medical history of mild hypertension treated with Ramipril, does not smoke cigarettes, and drinks alcohol socially. There's a family history, but no personal history of migraine. On physical examination, she's afebrile with a blood pressure of 172 over 96 and a normal pulse and respiratory rate. She's awake, alert, and conversational, but appears uncomfortable. Her general physical examination is entirely normal. The neck is supple, there is neither meningitis nor other signs of meningeal irritation. 
a thorough neurological exam, including assessment of optic fundi, visual fields, gait, and mental status is also normal. She's given 10 milligrams of metoclopramide and her headache resolves. So Dr. Chopra, when you hear this kind of story, what about the story makes you worry that this might not be a tension or migraine headache? Well, it's got three things in it that I always look out for. It's a sudden onset of headache. It peaks in intensity early and it's different than she's had before. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, at the top of my list at this point will be to rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Uh, some people use the mnemonic SUM, S-U-M, as in sudden for the S, unlike U, and previous maximal, the M in maximal at onset, to help them out. And so this lady, from a history point of view, to me stands out as high risk of a secondary serious headache. And one of the things that we mentioned before is that even though her headache got better from a anti-migraine medication, it in no way tells us that is her diagnosis. So that's one of the pitfalls we mentioned before. In our first case with a 35-year-old woman with migraine, she described her headache as the worst headache of her life. And in this case, this patient said that it wasn't the worst headache of her life. Why is the question, was this the worst headache of your life, often misleading? When you look at the Perry study from the BMJ that we'll look at in a few minutes, I think, the inter-rater reliability of the worst headache is really difficult because of what the patients describe and what's being recorded or being asked about by the clinician. So um, as interesting a question as it is, we sometimes don't get the right answer or don't have the most reliable answer from patients. Right. Yeah, I, I usually tell my residents to just ignore the statement, worst headache of my life. I mean, if that's what's going to clue you into that this could be a subarachnoid hemorrhage, then that's great. But otherwise, it is really not very telling. In fact, when you look at the literature, less than 10% of patients who say they have worst headache of their life have a life-threatening diagnosis. So the specificity is very low. So assuming that the leading diagnosis here is subarachnoid hemorrhage, what are some key clues from the history that you can ask when thinking about subarachnoid hemorrhage? So we've established in this patient that they have the sum mnemonic. What other questions do you want to ask to get an idea of whether this could be a subarachnoid? So other associations such as when did this happen, if this is on exertion, this will increase the likelihood. If the patient had presyncopal events during the headache as well, that will increase the risk. And certainly if there's risk factor of family history of aneurysms or collagen vascular disease, that will also increase the risk of that as well. I also always make sure when I'm considering subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, two things I also look out for is ask them if they've had a similar headache or a different headache in the previous one month. Because we know when, by the time we finally make the diagnosis of subarachnoid, if you actually ask these individuals and patients, have they had it? They said, oh yeah, by the way, in the last two, three weeks, I had a somewhat of a similar or different headache. And those we suspect may be those sentinel bleeds that uh, maybe if we had uh, done a, a workup previously, we might have caught uh, the subarachnoid hemorrhage uh, sooner rather than later. And the second thing is that about half the patients with a documented subarachnoid hemorrhage on initial CT imaging who actually survived a hospital have had a syncopal event. So I think loss of consciousness 
is a in a person you're already thinking about subarachnoid really helps build the case that you should make sure you should appropriately investigate them. Yeah, I had a patient who was a mother who was yelling and screaming at her child and had headache and then passed out and it ended up being a subarachnoid hemorrhage. I, there was another guy who was riding his bicycle up a hill who just passed out and he doesn't remember having the headache and he ended up having a subarachnoid. So, yeah, I think syncope, the literature supports it, but also my, in my personal experience, I've seen a handful of patients who have presented with syncope who end up being subarachnoid hemorrhage, so it's definitely something to think about. As subarachnoid hemorrhage is often a difficult diagnosis to pick up, we should know about some of the important risk factors for subarachnoid hemorrhage. These risk factors might help tip us off that the patient in front of us with a headache has a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So some of the risk factors you should think about are a family history of brain aneurysms or subarachnoid hemorrhage, collagen vascular disease, binge drinking and smoking, cocaine, a history of hypertension, and a history of polycystic kidney disease. There was actually a guy I knew in high school who ended up getting hooked on cocaine, and in his mid-30s, very sadly, he went out drinking with his buddies, had 10 drinks, snorted some cocaine, and ended up dying of a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So for the patient that comes in having been been drinking and using cocaine with a headache, they're especially at high risk for things like subarachnoid hemorrhage. Dr. Chopra, you had mentioned that the reason why dexamethasone can work in migraine is because theoretically there's some inflammation around the blood vessels in the brain. I've heard conflicting things whether migraine is actually a risk factor for subarachnoid or not. You know, some people say actually patients with migraine will be at a higher risk for subarachnoid, so you should be worrying about people with migraine for subarachnoid, and then I've also heard that that's not true. Yeah, no, migraine is absolutely not a risk factor for subarachnoid. I think the important thing is that people with migraines are just like other people in the population. They have a similar risk of getting a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So the opposite is also true. Just because they have migraines is not that you don't have to worry about alternative serious causes, but at the same time, migraine on itself is not a risk factor for subarachnoid hemorrhage. Okay. It might just come out that people with migraine are investigated more for potential subarachnoid hemorrhage, so the incidence might be higher because the pickup rate might have been higher. Sure, so there's just a bias there. So this patient had an elevated blood pressure of 172 over 96. Can you explain to us why we should be cautious in assuming that elevated blood pressure is the cause of a headache in patients who present with isolated head to the emergency department? So a little bit about how we should be interpreting blood pressure in the setting of someone with a headache. Yeah, so this is, I think, a pet peeve of mine. And this happens by the patient and it happens with physicians. When patients are ill or they have a noxious stimuli, uh, when they, particularly when they're in pain, it is not an unusual response that their blood pressure goes up and it's not an unusual finding that their blood pressure is elevated and sometimes quite severely elevated. Uh, but it is the wrong assumption generally to assume that it is the blood pressure that's causing the headache. So the bottom line is that hypertensive emergencies as the sole cause of a significant headache is rare. Yes, they do exist, whether it be in preeclampsia or other causes where you have papilledema and you find symptoms compatible and signs compatible such as a depressed sensorium. But for the vast majority of other patients, 
the hypertensive is just a secondary factor. It's the response to whatever's going on with the patient. And we should absolutely not try in any which way or form to try to aggressively lower it. Because in fact, I think the harm with trying to acutely lower an elevated blood pressure, even to the levels of like 200 and uh, over 120, is that you may cause the patient harm. You may, in a patient that already has some degree of cerebrovascular disease, you're going to drop the perfusion in some part of their brain beyond their autoregulatory ways, and you're going to lead to a TIA or other, or other secondary ischemic event. Here I'd like to tell you about some of the key causes of subarachnoid hemorrhage and then how aneurysms can present without hemorrhaging and how that compares to the way patients present with a full-blown subarachnoid hemorrhage and talk a little bit about the high-risk clinical characteristics of subarachnoid hemorrhage. 80% of patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage are aneurysmal or from an AVM, which are the ones that we really worry about. The other 20% are idiopathic and those patients generally don't need surgery and do very well. About 2-6% to of people are walking around with an aneurysm but don't have any symptoms at all. Sometimes these people with aneurysms, if they get big enough, will present to the emergency room before they rupture. So a non-ruptured presentation of an aneurysm can present in three ways really. They can present with headache, they can present with stroke-like symptoms, or they can present with a seizure. Usually the symptoms they have are from a mass effect and often they'll have a cranial nerve three palsy, the one where the eye is down and out. So that's the presentation of non-ruptured aneurysms. In terms of the presentation of a subarachnoid hemorrhage, an aneurysm that's ruptured, the level of awareness can range from perfectly normal right down to a GCS of three. For the patients who come in with a normal or near normal mental status, and those are the ones that are most often missed, there's a very recent study out of BMJ by Jeff Perry, Ian Steele, and others entitled High Risk Clinical Characteristics for Subarachnoid Hemorrhage in Patients with Acute Headache a Prospective Cohort Study. Now for those of you who don't know who Jeff Perry and Ian Steele are, they're the fathers of emergency medicine decision rules. They came up with the Ottawa Ankle Rule, the Canadian CT Head Rule, and a whole bunch of others. What they tried to do in this study was come up with a decision rule for patients who present with headache to the emergency department for who needs further investigation for subarachnoid hemorrhage, i.e. a CT and LP. While this study hasn't been validated as a decision rule yet, there's a lot of interesting take-home points that can help us determine our pretest probability of subarachnoid hemorrhage in the patient who presents to the emergency department with headache. What they did in the study was they took about 2,000 patients who had acute headache with peak intensity within one hour of onset and looked at 13 historical and physical exam variables that were reliably associated with subarachnoid hemorrhage. So the variables that were highly associated with subarachnoid hemorrhage were age over 40, a complaint of neck stiffness or pain, onset with exertion, vomiting, witness loss of consciousness, and a raised blood pressure over 160 over 100. These are all strongly and reliably associated with subarachnoid hemorrhage. So hopefully once the study is validated, 
we'll have a much better idea of who we need to do a CT and LP on to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage. In terms of other physical examination clues, remember that almost half of the patients will have no localizing signs, a normal level of consciousness, and normal vital signs. One of the more common neurologic findings is a cranial nerve 6 palsy, so that they'll present with diplopia. And we've mentioned in previous EMC episodes the subhyloid hemorrhage, which can sometimes be seen in a subarachnoid hemorrhage. This is a dense red bleed seen on fundoscopy of the retina in the setting of a headache, and it's also called Tursen syndrome. This is pathic mnemonic for subarachnoid hemorrhage if you see it. What we didn't mention on previous episodes is that if you pick up a subhyloid hemorrhage, the patient should be referred to an ophthalmologist as they can end up with retinal detachment from the bleed. Next, Dr. Chopra is going to talk a bit about meningismus as a sign in subarachnoid hemorrhage and how the signs in subarachnoid hemorrhage might change over time. The physical findings are really dependent on the culprit vessel, the location of the bleed, the time of presentation from onset, or whether the bleeding is still ongoing, uh, will really determine what you will find. So a lot of the uh, symptoms, some of them take a couple of hours to develop, and if the patient presents early, they may not be much to find, but I particularly look for signs of meningism as the after a couple of hours, the blood released in the subarachnoid space begins to irritate the meninges. All this being said, with trying to come up with decision rules, how good or bad are emergency doctors in general at diagnosing subarachnoid hemorrhage? There's actually a fairly decent study done by Michael Scholl and his group uh, basically looked in, at uh, the emergency department population in Ontario, looked at thousands of patients, and the ones that were diagnosed with subarachnoid looked at their previous visit for a headache prior to the diagnosis of subarachnoid, and they estimated that about 1 in 20 of patients who would present to the emergency department would be on their initial index ED visit, would not walk out with a diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage. Hence, we have to assume we miss about 1 in 20 based on a study done a couple of years ago. Okay, so we still have a way to go to improve our miss rate. I think so. I think we're becoming better at it. Uh, I think because it's being well advertised, we should look for it, but we need to continue to get better. Right. So medical education, particularly podcasts, I think will be a uh, very important. Very important, Dr. Hellman. Very important. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So let's talk a little bit about the workup of subarachnoid hemorrhage. So this is where it gets a bit controversial. We all know to start with a plain CT head to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage because it's good at picking up small amounts of blood in the brain where it shouldn't be. How does the sensitivity of plain CT for subarachnoid hemorrhage change over time? So CTs are not what they used to be 20, 30 years ago. So we began with single slicing CTs to now multi-detector CTs. And to date, we do not have the right sensitivity that we actually know for subarachnoid hemorrhage from our newest scanners. But the bottom line is if you put all the studies together, do a meta-analysis, you find that in the first 12 hours after you've had your subarachnoid hemorrhage, you would anticipate that your even low multi-slicer CT will detect 95% of all your subarachnoids. But then it decreases to 85% the next day, it decreases to 50% within a week, i.e. if the bleeding stops and you don't die, uh, the blood gets resorbed and the sensitivity of the CT diminishes from time from your onset of your headache. 
So a CT on its own is inadequate to rule out subarachnoid if it's negative. Right, so the standard teaching then is that for the workup of subarachnoid hemorrhage, you do a plain CT, and if that's negative, you go on to an LP. Now with the ever-improving resolution of CT scans, there's been some experts who claim that plain CT is good enough to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage and that we don't even have to go on to an LP. While the AHA guidelines will say that the standard is to go on to do LP, do you see any time now or in the near future that we won't need to do LPs? There have been recent studies using these multi-detector CT that shows that maybe the sensitivity is up to almost 100, but not 100% in the first five days. So the sensitivity they quote is about 99.7%. With that, with a potential diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage, I cannot see myself not doing NLP until the sensitivity is 100%. However, with other studies that I know that are coming down the pipeline, there might be a chance in particularly maybe low-risk patients who have presented early to the ED, maybe a multi-slice CT would be enough, i.e. 100% sensitive to rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Okay, so yeah, I understand there's, there was one study that did show close to 100% sensitivity but none of the other studies have really borne those out. I guess the other thing to think about is that most of these studies that talk about the sensitivity of CT for subarachnoid hemorrhage are using neuroradiologists to read their scans, and there's a lucky few of us who will actually have a neuroradiologist look at the scan. I mean, most of the time when we're making this decision, it's 3 in the morning, you look at the scan yourself, you know, your average emergency doctor isn't going to have the same sensitivity for subarachnoid hemorrhage as a neuroradiologist will, obviously. I think the lumbar puncture, patients hate it, and it, my perception is that physicians don't like it. So we're always trying to find a way of not doing it. And I think at this day and age, we still don't have the confidence, because remember, a lot of these studies were still mathematical models. They excluded late presenters. The inclusion criteria involved one or two imaging specialists to look at it. And so I think the balance was stowed for finding that the CT may on its own include it. But still, I think even putting the studies together, they tell you that maybe if everything is done exactly in that pattern, you would miss less than 1% of subarachnoid hemorrhage. And I say to you, I don't think at this point, less than 1% is good enough for me. I'm going to be devil's advocate here. We have one good study that shows a 100% sensitivity to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage with a plain CT scan if done in the first five days. If you actually look at the number needed to treat patients that you need to do an LP on after a normal CT who would actually benefit from surgery, you're talking about a number needed to treat of hundreds and hundreds. You also have to weigh in the potential side effects of the LP that up to 25% of people will get a post-LP headache, and there's the rare chance of infection and neurologic damage. It is an invasive procedure. Knowing that it's such a small percentage of patients that you might be missing, do you still think that we should be LPing everybody with a negative CT who we're suspicious of? Yeah, I, I absolutely think you should because I think you have a test 
that's immediately available to you will give you a result within the next two to three hours depending on your lab which can completely exclude the diagnosis if you're not going to go down that route you should clearly have an informed discussion with your patient and my discussion would be I have done this great test you've presented in the first 12 hours you have a really small chance of having a subarachnoid hemorrhage and a really really small chance of a subarachnoid hemorrhage that anybody's actually going to do anything about but if you're the one in the 500 and you do have it and you have a second one, it will likely kill you. That's an informed discussion. The physician has said to the patient and you can come up with a reasonable plan of action. My approach is alternative. I already have the LP train in my hand. I'm ready to go. I give them the pros and benefits and it's for them to refuse. That sounds perfectly reasonable. I, I agree with that. I have a very low threshold to do LP on patients. And patients understand the risk of LP, and I do everything I can to make sure that the risk of a post-LP headache is less. But I, I do offer, and I advise strongly that they should get one, but I give them all the risks that's involved. Okay. I guess it also depends what your risk tolerance is and what your acceptable miss rate is. This is not pulmonary embolism. The second bleed has a significant chance of killing you within a week. Okay, so this is a really serious disease that you just can't afford. That your your miss rate, say your acceptable miss rate for MI or thromboembolic disease, might be one percent. Let's say for subarachnoid hemorrhage, it needs to be zero. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other we have to take it in context. We have something we can do at the bedside, which is completely within our control to not miss the one less than 1%. With an MI and pulmonary embolism, we've generally exhausted usual algorithms before we say you have a less than 1% chance because we're not going to go on to pulmonary angiogram, as an example. We're not going to admit the patient for five days to be closer to 100%. Here, though, we have the ability to rule out the subarachnoid in the next three hours. So we better have a good reason why we're not going to do a relatively simple bedside test. Right. It's inconvenient. We don't like it. Patient doesn't like it. It adds three hours to the ED time, but it's the right thing to do at, at this day and age. The other kind of patient that might be missed on CT is the anemic patient, for example, who's sensi the sensitivity for CT for the anemic patient is less. So, you know, you might be especially keen to go on to LP in a patient who's anemic who presents with a worrisome story for subarachnoid hemorrhage. Right. Okay, so when it comes to doing an LP, the sooner we do the plain CT, as Dr. Chopra said, the more sensitive it will be to rule out the subarachnoid hemorrhage. So especially if it's done in the first 12 hours, it's going to be quite sensitive. Conversely, the more time after the headache onset, the more likely xanthochromia will be present. If we do decide to do an LP, should we wait until after 12 hours of the onset of headache when xanthochromia is thought to be the most reliably present, or should we just do the LP as soon as possible? I think what should be done is what's being done right now. We typically do the LP right away. We want to know a, a negative LP excludes the disease, and you do not have to wait for or repeat the LP for xanthochromia. So if your red cell counts are very low or zero, you exclude the diagnosis of acute subarachnoid hemorrhage. And in terms of waiting 12, which can often end up, I'm sure, even longer to do the LP, 
then you're A, delaying the diagnosis in the patient that has the disease, and you then put them at the risk of re-bleeding and, and essentially dying in front of you in the emergency department or having a negative consequence. So if you're looking for the diagnosis of arachnoid, you do the LP right away, negative cell counts, you're done. Having positive cell counts, you have to go down a different algorithm. And in terms of xanthochromia, you know, on its own, most, if not all centers in Canada and most centers in North America don't have a spectrophotometer. So we don't actually have a, an accurate mechanism to actually detect xanthochromia. It's basically holding a test tube in front of a whitish background and using our visual to see if, if we notice any discoloration indicative of bilirubin. So in and itself, A, it's not a very sensitive test because we don't do it in the proper way and most of the time it is not helpful. The patients that I would reserve the test for are clearly the people who have already presented in a delayed manner where I think the xanthochromia would be expected to be somewhat helpful. Let's just talk a little bit about CSF analysis in subarachnoid hemorrhage. You had mentioned that if you have zero or close to zero red cells, that excludes the diagnosis. Could you just go through for us some of the pitfalls of CSF analysis in subarachnoid hemorrhage? Sure. So often we get a bloody tap or a traumatic tap, and you can get red cells in your CSF tubes. There are some methods to calculate or try to differentiate between a traumatic tap versus a true subarachnoid hemorrhage CSF readings um, that hasn't really been tested very much in literature. And a true subarachnoid hemorrhage can hide within the traumatic tap counts. So this from 2.1 to 2.4 should go down at least by 25%. That hasn't really held true. The only thing that I try to depend on is really the last tube, so tube four or tube three. If there is anything less than five red blood cell, that's been tested in literature as being very sensitive to rule out a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Um, more than that, that hasn't been tested, and it's really hard to decide what's positive and what's negative. Is eight positive? Is 25? I'm, I'm not so sure. But one of the pitfalls is not to say that because there are more cells than tube 1 and 4, there has to be traumatic. I see. One of the other things that Dr. Steinhardt had talked about in the previous episode when we were talking about meningitis was how important it is to do opening pressure despite the fact that sometimes we're not trained to do it well and sometimes you need an assistant and it takes longer. That's very important because about two-thirds of subarachnoid hemorrhage patients will have an elevated opening pressure and that can sometimes help distinguish between a traumatic tap and a true subarachnoid hemorrhage as well. Yeah, I find opening pressure, it's a given. It's a, it's a bonus. It, it's useful in two things. A, as you mentioned, Dr. Hellman, that uh, there are alternative diseases that may trigger you. If the opening pressure is very significantly elevated, then you might be thinking of other diseases such as idiopathic uh, intracranial hypertension or cerebral venous thrombosis. Even though subarachnoid, eventually most people who have the disease have a high opening pressure, particularly in the first 24 hours, it's not severely elevated, though it crosses our boundaries from being elevated. But the other advantage is when you're doing NLP, there's always a small chance you're gonna have a traumatic tap Doing the opening pressure on its own clears one to three cc's of CSF 
and allows the initial uh, traumatic tab blood count also to decrease. As you know, many people have described wasting two or three cc's to diminish the red cell count that may be related to a traumatic tab. Well, here's a just a reasonable way to do it by checking the opening pressure. You're actually getting two things in one. Good point. A two for one special. All right. So for patients who have a contraindication to LP or who outright refuse LP, and we all know who these patients are, is there a good alternative to doing an LP to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage? So you've got your patient who comes in with a thunderclap headache, you're worried about subarachnoid hemorrhage, you do your CT, your plain CT is normal as read by the radiologists, you're still thinking that there might be a subarachnoid hemorrhage there, you want to go on to LP to get your sensitivity up to 100% to rule it out, but the patient, for whatever reason, maybe they've had an LP before, maybe they had an epidural that went badly in the past, and they absolutely refuse to have the LP. You have the informed consent conversation with them. What are the alternatives? Can we do a CTA or an MRA, for example, as a replacement for LP? If you have access to MRA, that's great, and I've been lucky enough to work in centers that have access to that. But in a smaller center, I think the next step will be a CTA. And if it is positive, that means a phone call with the neurosurgeon to decide whether the headache was truly a bleed or an asymptomatic aneurysm we just happened to pick up. You know, things used to be uh, so much easier in the past uh, when we didn't have CTAs and MRAs because... If a patient really refused an LP, then the physician would jump up and down, have them sign a leave against medical form, and out the door they go. Life was just so much simpler. And now, I think in this day and age, it's completely different. If you have access, I think most centers would typically only have timely access to a CTA. So we're typically talking about doing a CTA following a CT. So, you know, significant amount of extra radiation. But... I guess the beauty of CTA, it's useful in people that A, clearly refuse, and B, there's failed attempts at doing the LP. And so you do the CTA, first of all, 10% of the time, you're not going to have a good study, so it's not helpful. But assuming it's a 90%, it's a technically good study, it is negative. One thing you're absolutely confident about, and that is that this patient is not going to die in the next 24 hours. A technically good study rules out a subarachnoid-causing lesion that's likely going to take the patient's life in the very near future. The drawbacks, I think, Dr. Yu already alluded to some. One is it doesn't find teeny-weeny aneurysms. It doesn't detect whether the aneurysm that it does find was the culprit of causing the subarachnoid hemorrhage. So it will clearly, the more we do these tests, will clearly lead to more over-investigation, more worry on the part of the patient who will require further testing, investigation, a significant proportion of who will eventually have any serious diagnosis ruled out. So it has its positives, but I think if I have a CT, or as Dr. Yu mentioned, MR available, and I can get it in a timely manner, no longer can we just say, well, you refused to have a nice day. We now have to make a decision what further testing to do. There's two main studies that show that CTA after plain CT can rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage with about 98 to 99% certainty. The first one's out of the Journal of Radiology from 2010 called Intracranial Aneurysms in Patients with Subarachnoid Hemorrhage, CT Angiography as a Primary Examination Tool for Diagnosis, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. 
The second study is called Can Computed Tomography and Geography of the Brain Replace Lumbar Puncture in the Evaluation of Acute Onset Headache After a Negative Non-Contrast Cranial Computed Tomography Scan? That's out of Academic Emergency Medicine, also of last year. While CTA or MRA should be used after a patient has refused LP, or CSF can't be obtained despite multiple attempts, CTA or MRA should not replace LP as an alternative option when LP is available and the patient has consented to the procedure. The reason is that CTA and MRA can't distinguish between unruptured asymptomatic aneurysms, which about 4% of the population walk around with, and an aneurysm that has bled and may re-bleed, causing death or major disability. This is very much akin to a finding of a slipped disc on an MRI of an L-spine, and still doesn't tell you if the patient's symptoms are due to the disc or not, since so many people walk around with asymptomatic slipped discs. The other thing is that if we skipped the LP and instead did a CTA or MRA for all the patients with a thunderclap headache and negative plain CT, we would be picking up tons of asymptomatic aneurysms that may go on to surgery unnecessarily, with all the potential complications, again, akin to the slipped L-spine disc. So here I'd like to just review how to diagnose subarachnoid hemorrhage, and we'll go on to treatment after that. First, in terms of the history of subarachnoid hemorrhage, remember the mnemonic SUM IT UP. S for sudden onset, U, unlike previous, and M for maximal at onset. The recent PERI study shows us that if a patient is over the age of 40, complained of neck stiffness or neck pain, had their headache on exertion, was vomiting, had a witness loss of consciousness, or a raised blood pressure over 160 over 100, these were strongly and reliably associated with subarachnoid hemorrhage. Remember, don't rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage if the patient's headache resolves after some meds you gave them in the ED, like the case we discussed here. Resolving pain does not rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage. In order to reliably exclude subarachnoid hemorrhage, you need a normal CT head read by a radiologist, no xanthochromia, and zero or near zero RBCs in the CSF. Don't wait to do the LP so that xanthochromia is more likely to be present, as the visual method that most of us do is pretty inaccurate. Do an opening pressure for all of these patients because an elevated opening pressure may help you distinguish a traumatic tap from a subarachnoid hemorrhage as about two-thirds of patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage will have an elevated opening pressure. And also, a really high opening pressure may be a clue that a patient has an alternate diagnosis such as cerebral venous thrombosis. Finally, for those patients who have a contraindication or refuse LP, or have a traumatic tap with more than five RBCs in the last tube, and you still have a suspicion for subarachnoid hemorrhage, CTA or MRA, while not as sensitive as LP, can often identify the culprit aneurysm or AVM, keeping in mind that angiography should not replace LP as a primary modality after a negative CT of the head. Maybe in the near future, plain CT will be good enough to rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage with a 100% sensitivity, but for now, it's best to follow the AHA guidelines and do an LP after a negative plain CT for all patients you suspect might have a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Next, we're going to talk about the ED treatment of a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Until recently, when I picked up a subarachnoid hemorrhage in the emergency department, 
Upon confirming the diagnosis, I'd go around high-fiving everyone, put a call into the neurosurgeon, who, by the way, almost don't exist in community hospitals where I've worked before. And so they won't be seeing the patient for many hours and sometimes not even until the next day, since in Toronto, at least, it's sometimes very difficult to find a neurosurgical bed. I've now learned that there is a whole lot more to managing subarachnoid hemorrhage in the emergency department besides just getting on the phone with the neurosurgeon. What are the most important aspects of treatment in the ED for the patient with a confirmed subarachnoid hemorrhage? And why is it important for us to initiate treatment in the ED as soon as possible? First of all, there's um, a common and very still very controversial uh, issue, and that's uh, hypertension. We know that at some time during their ED stay, people with subarachnoid hemorrhage will come in with an elevated blood pressure, which may or may not persist, or have progressive blood pressure issues in the emergency department. There is actually no good literature to actually give us an idea whether, when, and if we should treat these people. But I also know from experience at a neurosurgical center that it is common practice to try to lower a patient's persistently elevated blood pressure. So that's a very important point. That does not mean that you take one or two readings in the first hour of emergency and then you order the medication. That means time has gone by and the patient's blood pressure remains significantly elevated. And I really can't define what significantly elevated means, but typically you want to try to get the mean arterial pressure below 100, 110 as a reasonable guideline. There are uh, American Heart Association guidelines, American College of Cardiology guidelines, but I can tell you the science behind this is fairly weak. And I think this is worth a discussion with the person who's going to look after your patient eventually to come up with a plan of when to lower the blood pressure, how to lower the blood pressure, and where to keep the blood pressure. Typically, the best agent, I would say, in the emergency department is labetalol. And so, you know, starting off with 20 or 40 milligrams bolus and an infusion, depending on what you and the consultant decide on. The other thing is, I, I, I agree with you, Dr. Hellman, we live in a reality where the patient, once we've even made the diagnosis, doesn't head out of our emergency department, sometimes for hours, and unfortunately, sometimes even for days. And so we have to consider secondary complications which can occur with a patient with a subarachnoid hemorrhage, and in uh, particular, uh, vasospasm. So the neurology, neurosurgery specialists would like to get these people started on medication that would decrease vasospasm, and in particular, uh, nimodipine, 60 milligrams orally or by NG tube, is felt to be a standard of care, started within the first 24 hours of the patient presenting, And so clearly when there's a delay in getting the patient to the consultant's care, that is something that you may have to consider. All of these things, I think, have to be in discussion with the person you've referred the patient to, including the consideration for anti-seizure medication, because particularly with irritation of blood, particularly if it pools on one side rather than homogeneously spread, it's worth having discussion whether to start this person on anti-epileptic medication. So there's three things you can do in the emergency department with your patient with subarachnoid hemorrhage that can make a difference. And these things should be done in consultation with the neurosurgeon. First, you need to consider controlling the blood pressure. 
use labetalol and aim for a blood pressure of a map of about 100, and this is to prevent re-bleeding, which is most common in the first 24 hours. Second, nemotipine, 60 milligrams, PO or via NG, Q4H, should be initiated to prevent vasospasm. And lastly, consider giving anti-seizure prophylaxis, as about 5 to 20% of patients with a subarachnoid hemorrhage will have at least one seizure. Just before we leave subarachnoid hemorrhage, I just want to tell you a little bit about the ECG findings that you can find in subarachnoid hemorrhage. ECG changes following subarachnoid hemorrhage occur in between 50 and 100% of cases. The typical findings are deep precordial T waves, which are usually wide, prominent, and inverted. The patient's usually bradycardic, and there's often a prolonged QT interval. These findings can also occur in other major intracerebral events like a subdural or an intracerebral hemorrhage. Now, ECG changes may be incorrectly interpreted as coronary insufficiency, and of course, you don't want to be giving a patient ASA, heparin, and clopidogrel when they're in fact having a subarachnoid hemorrhage. The reason you can get these changes, and even a bump in your troponin as well, is because of neurogenic myocardial stunning, which causes transient coronary vasospasm. That marks the end of part one of this episode. Please go on to part two, where we'll talk about more life, limb, or vision-threatening causes of headache in the emergency department. Unchain my heart. Unchain my heart. Baby, let me be. Unchain my heart. Unchain my heart. Cause you don't care about me. Sort of like a pillowcase, but you let my love go away. So unchain my heart, oh, please, please set me free. Unchain my heart.